Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, drug addiction, mental health conditions, and elder abuse that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Watch costs and the profits take care of themselves. So said Andrew Carnegie, whose profits helped build Carnegie Hall and Carnegie Mellon University, among other monuments to his business success. Yet many entrepreneurs ignore Carnegie's advice, racking up business expense after business expense. When the bills come due, all they're left with is desperation. Healthcare entrepreneur Amy Archer Gilligan learned this the hard way. As her profits dwindled, the costs of running her elder care home only increased. Soon, Amy realized she had to change her business model, shifting her focus from healthcare to murder. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to help provide Alistair with some medical insight into our first installment of the story of Amy Archer Gilligan, a New Haven turn-of-the-century imposter who welcomed the elderly and the invalid into her care home, where the care was, well, let's just say, not what was advertised. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Amy Archer Gilligan, a nursing home owner turned serial killer, 
In the early 1900s, Amy killed dozens of elderly patients. Some estimate that her final body count was as high as 64. Today, we'll explore the troubling cracks in Amy's early behavior, the opening of her infamous nursing home, and the facility's peculiar decline. Next week, we'll see how Amy's killings escalated even as swirling rumors damaged her business and brought authorities knocking. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Spring had come to Connecticut and the dirt in Cheshire's hillside cemetery was finally soft. Soft enough to dig. One night in May 1916, a group of men quietly drove their shovels into the earth. Their operation had to be conducted quickly. Nobody in town could see what they were up to. Around 9 p.m., Dr. Arthur J. Wolfe and Police Captain Hurley arrived at the scene and nodded in approval. Now that a hole had been dug, it was their turn to step in. But Dr. Wolfe and Captain Hurley wouldn't be putting a body in the cemetery ground. They had to pull one out. The creaking coffin wood revealed the remains of Franklin Andrews, a former nursing home resident who'd complained of stomach pain before dying suddenly. Notably, the group wasn't exhuming his body because his death was unique, but because it followed a suspicious pattern. One that left authorities wondering about the slew of patient deaths at the Archer Home for the Elderly. And about its proprietor, Amy Archer Gilligan. Sure enough, when they cut into Franklin's body, the group found evidence of Amy Archer Gilligan's secret crime. She'd killed her patient. Little did they know, Amy had buried secrets all her life. The murder of Franklin Andrews was just the first to be uncovered. It's not certain when Amy Archer Gilligan began to lie, but it's likely she started early. Born around 1868 in Litchfield, Connecticut, Amy Duggan was the eighth of ten children, which would have been a lot for any set of parents. Their burden was only made heavier by the loss of their child, William, who died just before his first birthday. As with many tragedies in that era, however, the death was not a topic of discussion. Amy's parents brushed it under the rug, preferring to conceal their troubles. It seems that Amy internalized that way of coping. Once she was old enough to leave home, Amy lied to her sister Mary to ensure that her family wouldn't come looking for her. In a letter home, she wrote that she'd taken up a job as a bookkeeper in a department store. But when Mary went to visit Amy at her new job, she discovered that her sister was unemployed and living on the streets of New Haven. When Mary suggested she come back home, Amy refused. 
She didn't give a reason, but around that time, Amy and Mary's other sister was committed to a psychiatric institution. It's possible that the stigma surrounding this news was why Amy didn't want to live near her family. In the past, it was relatively common for family members of people struggling with mental illnesses to evade talking about them in public and sometimes cast their loved ones out altogether. Psychiatric afflictions in the early 20th century were treated like leprosy in a sense, and for many, institutionalization was a welcome solution. Back then, mental illness largely equated to an incurable defect, and sadly, keeping sufferers out of sight and mind was viewed as a solution. Given the lack of understanding surrounding mental health at the time, it's possible that Amy felt genetically destined to end up like her sister. Maybe she wanted a preemptive escape. We don't know Amy's exact reasoning, but it is clear she wanted to make a life on her own as she continued to seek work around New Haven. In her late 20s, Amy briefly worked as a teacher and as a governess. In both cases, Amy was asked to leave on account of her odd disposition. It seemed Amy's behavior kept her from holding down a job, but it didn't stop her from securing a husband. In the late 1890s, 29-year-old Amy Duggan met James Archer. She soon became Amy Archer. Eventually, they had a daughter, Mary. From there, Amy's prospects only grew brighter. In 1901, James and Amy moved into the home of John D. Seymour in Newington, Connecticut. They'd stumbled upon quite a bargain. In exchange for helping him out around the house and providing him with health care, John Seymour was prepared to offer the young couple free room and board. A generous deal and one built on false pretenses. Amy had told John Seymour that she was a nurse trained at the prestigious Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan, New York. However, no documentation had been found to support such a claim. It seems it was yet another lie, like the one she told her sister. Another hint at the way Amy embellished to get ahead. But John Seymour didn't question her qualifications or character, even when one of Amy's sisters visited and Amy refused to speak with her. Perhaps he didn't realize that Amy had a past to hide. Around this time, another one of her siblings was treated for mental illness, and Amy again turned a blind eye. Instead, she focused on her blossoming life with her husband, while her husband worked all day, Amy cared for John Seymour. They lived in apparent peace for three years. Until 1904, when John Seymour died of pneumonia. However, John Seymour's estate continued renting the house to the Archers, who in turn decided to rent it out themselves. Their new tenants were elderly, which gave Amy an idea. With the experience she'd garnered caring for John Seymour, her skill sets could prove lucrative. Together, Amy and her husband officially converted the space into their first nursing home. It was a bright idea. 
At that time, family dynamics were shifting in America. Children didn't always stick around to see their parents in their frailer years, and hospitals were overburdened. People in need of long-term care options often didn't have any. So James and Amy Archer tapped into a burgeoning market. Elder care facilities were in their infancy, so there was plenty of demand. Unfortunately, in 1907, John Seymour's family sold the house to new owners. In one quick swoop, the archers lost their home and their business. But they had big plans to restart. Hoping to create a similar operation, the archers planted roots in Windsor, Connecticut, just 12 miles away. They bought a home on Prospect Street, a beautiful two-story brick building with an attic and plenty of bedrooms. Plus, the local drugstore made it easy to access patient medications. Shortly after purchasing the residence in September 1907, they officially opened the Archer Home for Elderly People and Chronic Invalids. Opening a nursing home today requires special licensing, an accredited medical staff, and equipment similar to that of a hospital. Contemporary nursing homes can't officially be run out of private residences, but care homes can be. These places offer services like physical and occupational therapy, but a lack of state oversight limits their access to best medications and outside medical help. Given our modern standards of care, a setup like Amy and James Archer's would be hard to pull off with needy patients. But at the time, the business was cutting edge. New residents flocked to the Archer home. All the while, Amy eagerly worked to establish a new reputation for herself, departing once and for all from the dark shadows of her birth family. She even earned a nickname, Sister Amy, on account of the Bible that she carried everywhere she went. In reality, it was a calculated prop that successfully sold her public image as a sweet Christian homemaker. It also allowed her to promote her business as a form of charity. At a glance, Amy and James offered a great deal to their patients. On average, a single room's rent was $7 to $10 a week. Or, to make it simpler, they could pay a lump sum of $1,000 for lifetime care. At the time, that could be someone's entire life savings. So incoming residents were essentially placing a bet. Would they live long enough to justify the $1,000 expense? If they expected to live beyond two years, the rate would have seemed worth it. If they died beforehand, the home would turn a profit. And if there was one thing Amy wanted, it was to profit. Coming up, Amy's business grows sinister. Put yourself in the shoes of a real-life detective. Imagine examining the crime scene, gathering evidence and interviewing witnesses, feeling the pressure mount as you race against time to catch a criminal. Each week on Scotland Yard Confidential, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history. 
following in their footsteps as they hunt down suspects and solve seemingly impossible cases, like the scandalous murder of singer Cora Crippen in 1910, whose body was found in her cellar shortly after her husband skipped town, or the daring Hatton Garden heist of 2015, when a gang of elderly thieves made off with a haul worth millions, and the cryptic notes found at a murder scene during the First World War. Was it a clue or a red herring designed to throw investigators off? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast made in partnership with Noiser, airing episodes weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen to Scotland Yard Confidential for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. By 1909, 40-year-old Amy Archer had spent two years running the Archer Home for Elderly People and Chronic Invalids in Windsor, Connecticut. Meanwhile, she also maintained a steady marriage and cared for her daughter. From the outside looking in, her life was picture-perfect. But that summer, rumors sprouted surrounding the Archer Home, ones that threatened the future of Amy Archer's business. They started with a chatty old dame named Lucy Durand. Lucy was well known at the Archer home. Her relatives had paid the $1,000 to keep her taken care of in perpetuity, and she'd grown accustomed to her life there. She'd also made plenty of local friends. Lucy regularly confided in locals about her pleasant times at the Archer home. But in July 1909, the happy stories turned sour. Lucy confided in various locals that Amy Archer wasn't at all who she appeared to be. She was actually a mean, ugly woman with a temper. Lucy even revealed that Amy had asked her to stop going on her regular strolls through town. Naturally, Lucy refused. She wouldn't be told what to do. Amy resented this. When Lucy returned home one evening, Amy balled her hands into fists and hit Lucy Durand. It was one of the first instances where Amy had outright abused a resident, or inmate, as they were often known in that era. Said inmates were likely worried, wondering what Lucy had done to evoke such anger. Naturally, it seemed no one was more upset than Lucy herself. She promptly filed a complaint with the Connecticut Humane Society An investigator visited the home on July 14, 1909, though he couldn't find any evidence for Lucy's claims. Much like our more evolved approach to mental health, Alistair, our understanding of abuse and neglect have advanced as well. When it comes to nursing homes, common indicators of abuse include physical trauma, such as bruising or broken bones, psychological changes like depression, anxiety, or other mood changes, and diminished overall functioning. Doctors also pay special attention to sleep disturbances, sudden cognitive declines, and other behavioral changes, as these could suggest serious clinical neglect, like medication mix-ups, for example. Today, nursing homes have strong state and federal oversight, along with monitoring systems in place to prevent harm. 
Additionally, there's more vetting prior to hiring, and employees undergo regular sensitivity training. If you strip away all of this protection, though, someone like Amy could get away with a lot. It's true. Amy got off easy. The investigator only suggested some better ventilation in the home and a new window in one of the rooms. But even then, Amy's ego was bruised. She burned at the accusation that her facility needed changes. Any bad publicity posed a threat to her business. If she wanted to keep the home running, she had to shut Lucy up. So soon after the inspection finished, James and Amy Archer asked Lucy to take a ride in their car and whisked her off to a hospital near Middletown, Connecticut. James had primed the doctors ahead of time to expect a mentally unstable old woman. And that's what doctors found when Lucy arrived. The tending physicians blamed Lucy's excitable and irritable state on deteriorating mental faculties. Never mind that she'd essentially been abducted by her supposed caretakers. Without further investigation, the medical professionals declared her insane. They institutionalized her. It was an awful, traumatic experience for Lucy. But she later said that in some ways, it was an improvement. She would rather be in hell than spend another day in Amy Archer's home. It was an extreme sentiment, but Lucy Durand wasn't the only one who took issue with the way the facility was run. In December 1909, the family of resident Teresa McClintock sued Archer Home for $5,000, more than the Archers had paid for the building. Teresa alleged that conditions inside the home were filthy, with bad smells and dirty rooms exacerbating her pre-existing ailments. Teresa claimed that she was denied water and medicine even when she was sick. And to add insult to injury, Amy scolded Teresa whenever she requested help. Nowadays, it seems like Teresa would have a strong legal case. But unfortunately, in 1909, few standards were in place to protect the elderly from such awful conditions. The lawsuit wasn't likely to succeed. Still, if it deterred prospective elderly residents from staying at the nursing home, the financial loss could be inconceivable. Amy might even have to sell the business. So while she enlisted lawyers to fight it, she also began bolstering her public image. Amy quickly carried out a few targeted acts of charity, like buying the local church a new organ. But that wouldn't be enough to protect her from bad press. Fearing the worst, Amy developed a bigger plan to distract from the issue and buy sympathy fast. On February 10th, 1910, barely two months after news of the lawsuit broke, Amy's husband, James Archer, died. The death was attributed to kidney disease, or as it was known at the time, Bright's disease. Bright's disease is an old term for what's now called nephritis. 
The condition represents inflammation in the kidney's filtration system, or the tiny blood vessels called glomeruli that evacuate toxins through the urine. Nephritis can be either chronic or acute, meaning it can progress gradually or develop rapidly. It may develop on its own, but also from other diseases like diabetes or lupus. Causes and symptoms vary depending on the menu of myriad underlying illnesses. Acute nephritis may come from bacterial infections, autoimmune disorders, or a long list of other diseases. Chronic nephritis usually has more insidious origins. Since we know so little of James, the roots of his nephritis are unclear. We do know the townspeople were filled with sympathy for Amy, who was now a poor widow and a single mother managing a whole nursing home on her own. Amy published an obituary promptly and then, a few days later, wrote a mass thank you to all her well-wishers in the local paper. Townspeople probably felt the grieving woman deserved a break from the ugly town gossip. But not everyone shared that sentiment. Windsor resident Carlin Gosley was a beloved man about town known to many as Mr. Windsor. At one point, he'd been treasurer of the Windsor Rogue Detecting Society, an amateur squad of sleuths who investigated car thefts and other petty local crimes. He also contributed articles for the Hartford Courant, especially obituaries. And while he developed a friendship with Amy Archer, he could smell a scheme a mile away. It struck him as odd that James died so quickly and from a kidney disease, no less. Nephritis can be described physiologically as inflammation of the kidney's glomeruli, which are located in the kidney's filtration units, or nephrons. Glomeruli are structures made of little blood vessel clusters responsible for filtering the body's blood. The waste and toxins picked up by the glomeruli then get transported out of the body through the urine. Each of our kidneys contains millions of glomeruli, but if enough of them become damaged from excessive inflammation, our kidneys lose the ability to perform and kidney failure occurs when normal functioning drops below 15%. Unable to properly filter itself, the body will urinate unprocessed blood and vital proteins. In regard to our story, it's reasonable that Gosley was suspicious about James' death. This isn't a condition that normally kills so suddenly. Unfortunately, Gosley didn't have enough information to accuse Amy Archer of anything yet. To investigate further, he reviewed the obituaries of those who had died in the Archer home. Since its opening four years prior, nearly 30 people had died. Of course, it was a nursing home. One would expect the death rate to be high. There was nothing immediately odd here. Still, Gosley nursed his concern in silence, watching the Theresa McClintock lawsuit play out. Until May 1911, when Archer home patient Hilton Griffin died. Like James Archer, Hilton Griffin's illness came on suddenly and the death certificate merely cited the cause as old age. Now, at 81 years old, Hilton Griffin was certainly elderly, but it was odd he hadn't died from something. 
So Gosley decided to pay a visit to the drugstore across the street from the Archer home, the one where Amy purchased her medicines. He paged through the druggist's black book, where all purchases were recorded. Under Amy's name, vast quantities of arsenic. Coming up, Carlin Gosley acts on his shocking discovery. Now, back to the story. In mid-1911, rumors swirled around 42-year-old Amy Archer's home for the elderly. Following Amy's husband's sudden death, local reporter and amateur sleuth Carlin Gosley began keeping tabs on the death rate. Then, he got hold of the local drugstore's records and learned Amy had purchased vast quantities of arsenic. There it was, plain to see, Amy's murder method. Armed with the damning knowledge of how Amy killed, Carlin soon felt he'd also figured out why. As her finances worsened from the lawsuit brought by Teresa McClintock, Amy Archer needed cash flow fast. The only way to bring in more money to the home was to bring in more patients. But Amy could only bring in more patients when the old ones died. It all added up. Unfortunately, Carlin's theories reached Amy before they reached the police. By July 1911, Amy released a statement denying the rumors outright. Even worse, when prospective customers asked, she flat out denied that any residents had experienced neglect at the Archer home. The lawsuit? Frivolous. The waitlist for her facility was a mile long. Perhaps hoping to evade public attention, Amy kept a low profile for the rest of the year. But that would change soon. In 1912, when 59-year-old Franklin Andrews moved into the Archer home. A healthy, strong, and capable guy, Franklin offered his services as a handyman doing odd jobs and fix-ups to the building. He liked this place, and he liked Amy. But he did notice some strangeness. In letters to friends, Franklin remarked on how frequently people in the home seemed to die and how the deaths all happened the same way. In the middle of the night, a hearse would pull up outside the home. Meanwhile, Amy would call Dr. Howard King, who would sign the death certificate, writing a cause that made most sense to him. But these were merely guesses. After all, he had little prior experience with these patients, and they usually had sparse medical histories. Yet, Dr. King would simply fill out the paperwork while Amy hustled the body into the hearse. Then, off it would go to be embalmed immediately. Embalming fluids are pumped into the entire body to slow the decomposition of internal organs. These fluids contain a wide variety of chemicals, the primary one being a preservative agent, and today the most commonly used ingredient is formaldehyde. 
The problem with testing for poisons after the embalming process is that the fluid dilutes the blood and lowers the chemical concentration of any substance within. Also, liquid embalming mixtures can obscure and or react with target compounds under investigation in a post-mortem exam. Even today, embalming would muddy most toxicology studies and any bodily investigation is always best handled prior. Conveniently for Amy, in the early 1900s, arsenic was still present in certain embalming fluids meant to preserve the body, making it very difficult to determine if someone had been poisoned by it. Perhaps this is how Amy kept getting away with her crimes. And while the odd patterns at the Archer home may have confused Franklin, like Carl and Gosley, he didn't have enough information to act. For now. That same year, 43-year-old Amy began ordering massive quantities of morphine. But this wasn't for patients. It was for herself. Morphine's a great painkiller that's especially helpful during end-of-life cases. On the other hand, it's highly addictive, and for people who take it without proper cause, it's a very slippery slope. There have been plenty of times that I've helped patients with morphine addictions, and it's a difficult process to witness, let alone be directly supervising. Like other opiate abusers, morphine addicts usually experience an elevated or euphoric mood while taking this drug. They also tend to become less alert, cognitively inhibited, with depressed reflexes, and even apathetic. As with other addictions, their transition to sobriety can leave them physically agitated, sick, anxious, and depressed. Amy's morphine abuse certainly wasn't sustainable, and it could have been detrimental to her professional and social life. Amy's morphine use left her spaced out and disengaged as she tended to her elderly patients. Though one particular patient received her full attention. In the fall of 1913, 57-year-old Michael Gilligan entered the Archer home. 44-year-old Amy immediately saw him as someone who could prove an asset to her company. Michael had over $4,000 to his name, roughly the same amount she'd been sued for, and was now ordered to pay. The two married on November 25, 1913, and for a while, this seemed to solve some of Amy's problems. Townspeople were charmed by their relationship. Having a husband around certainly made her appear more stable, even if she was still abusing morphine and killing patients. As she'd done the previous year, Amy continued her pattern of whisking corpses off the premises almost as quickly as living residents entered. Yet despite her lucrative husband and murderous grift, Amy didn't believe she had enough. One night, in early January 1914, patient Franklin Andrews received a letter. It was from the newly married Amy Archer Gilligan. Begging Franklin for secrecy, Amy asked him for a loan of $1,000 to cover some debts Michael had. She needed the money urgently, tomorrow in fact. It couldn't wait. 
Franklin Andrews was already suspicious of happenings at the home, but thinking the best of Amy, he gave her $500, nearly two-thirds of his bank account at that time. But as he processed the situation, alarm bells went off in Franklin's head. Everyone in town knew that Michael Gilligan was not destitute. There was no reason Amy should need to ask Franklin for the money. Then, he did the math. In the years since he entered the Archer home, 18 people had died. In fact, since 1911, the home had been averaging about 11 deaths per year. This was not normal. A similar nursing home up in Hartford recorded an average of seven deaths a year, despite housing around four times as many patients. And then there was the lingering sour taste of the lawsuit. Sadly, before Franklin Andrews or Carlin Gosley could act, the Archer House's death average would go up again. In early February 1914, Michael Gilligan seemed to be a healthy, happy newlywed. Townspeople around Windsor recalled fond interactions with him. A pastor ran into him outside the post office and chatted about his recent marriage. Another friend spotted him trotting happily along past a hardware store. Which makes it a mystery why, on the 19th of the month, Amy Archer Gilligan deemed it urgent that he sign a new will and testament she'd drawn up for him. Michael signed it, figuring it would go to her anyway eventually. His $5,000 net worth was now set to be passed on to his wife in the unlikely event of his death. Only, it wasn't so unlikely. For over a month now, Amy had invested in about a pound of arsenic broken up across several purchases, so as not to raise eyebrows. A little over a day after signing his new will, Michael awoke in the middle of the night, convulsing, clutching his stomach in agony. He vomited uncontrollably, pale, sweaty, and barely conscious, it was clear that he wasn't going to make it through the night. For the second time in her life, Amy Archer Gilligan was watching her husband die. And she was in no hurry to call the doctor. Next week, as Amy's financial schemes unravel, she picks up the pace of her murders until a small town can no longer ignore the massacre happening right down the block. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on Amy Archer Gilligan, among the many sources we used, we found The Devil's Rooming House by M. William Phelps extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. 
Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Thomas Dolan Gabbett, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Scotland Yard Confidential is the new Spotify original from Parcast. Enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history as they crack seemingly impossible cases. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen for free on Spotify.